0: Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. Oh boy, I'm excited for this week. These stories that we have for you are guaranteed to give you the chills. Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My hometown has a dark urban legend. I was almost a victim. Written by New Age Solution. It was the spring of 1992. My roommates and I were going on a weekend camp out in the woods outside of our town. Our roommate Brock who was in the military had to stay at the base later than expected and said that he would meet us there later tonight which was unwelcome news for me and my other roommate Cole. We had a big fight earlier that week where some long-held truce had came out and truly hateful things were said that you couldn't just take back we hadn't spoken since and we weren't even making eye contact but reluctantly we bit the bullet and we ended up carpooling while giving my bags a final check i heard cole re-enter the house and head to his room i took the opportunity to step outside and load my bags in the car i got in the driver's seat and smoked a cigarette while waiting for cole he always moved at his own pace and had no regard whatsoever for punctuality I'm sure you know the type. His blatant disregard for timeliness was what I hated most about him, and it actually had caused our blowout. This situation was a classic example. I wanted to be on the road by 8, and here we were at 8.05, still idling in the driveway. A few more minutes passed before I saw Cole's red hoodie appear in my side view mirror. I heard him put his bags in the trunk, after which he got into the passenger seat. Cole had his hood pulled up, arms tightly folded, and he was turned towards the window, making a concerted effort to avoid so much as glancing in my direction. How petty, I thought, trying to keep my eyes fixed on the road, and acting like I didn't notice Cole's childish passive aggressiveness. I still had a lot to get off my chest and I was dying to unleash it on him, but I didn't want to start this weekend off on a bitter note. He was already living rent-free in my head, I thought. Don't give him the satisfaction. Remarkably, we reached the campsite without even looking at each other or speaking. The campsite was situated right off a fire road along a small embankment that led to the river. We were about 2 miles into the forest, though it was a pretty secluded spot, perfect in case we got a little bit too rowdy. We were meeting 4 of our other friends, Mason, Clark, Marvin and Stephanie, who I was really looking forward to seeing. We were getting close 4 years ago before she had left for grad school, she wound up living out there full time and apparently had planned on staying permanently. I had only found out the other day that she had moved back into town and would be at the camp out this weekend. Although we hadn't spoken in a long time, I wanted to see if this reunion could rekindle some of the old magic that we had had years earlier. I could see the fires glow and everyone sitting around it as they reached for my headlights illuminating the campsite. I pulled up and gave everyone a wave as they started heading towards my car. As soon as I brought my car to a halt, Cole threw the door open, stepped out, and didn't even bother to shut it as he angrily stomped towards the river. I tried to show it that it didn't bother me, and I was all smiles at getting out of my car. I guess you two are still getting a divorce. Mason asked jokingly as he walked up and gave me a quick high-five hug. I shrugged. He'll get over it. I replied before quickly changing the subject. I mentioned how Brock would be coming later tonight, there was only room for two cars so he would have to park in a nearby lot and hike to the campsite. After greeting Clark and Marvin the four of us chatted for a few minutes before Marvin went to catch up with Cole. I immediately noticed when Miss Steph walked up to us and we had instantly locked eyes. She was a little thinner and looked kind of worn or burnt out but that didn't make her any less beautiful. She still had that glowing aura, those same mysterious light-green eyes, dark, wavy hair, smooth, silky skin, and mesmerizing smile. We both gasped a breathy, hi, to each other, before awkwardly embracing. You're back in town, I shakily uttered, clearly exhibiting my nervousness. Steph smiled and nodded. Yeah, life can be crazy sometimes, she replied. One minute you've got everything going for you, and next, you're wondering how much lower than rock bottom you can go. My eyes were drawn to Steph's bare arms, which had their fair share of cuts, scrapes, bruises, and what looked like puncture marks. i made no effort to hide my staring at her arms, and I frowned. My reaction, though, was out of concern and not disgust or repulsion, which I think that Steph had sensed. Everybody's got their own demons, I said, smiling while lightly grabbing the tips of her hands. And how we fight those battles is what I think defines us. Steph Smart. You are always so philosophical, she replied, giggling. I never forgot that about you. That sounds like we've got a lot to catch up on, I said to which she had nodded in agreement. Steph told me why she had left Boston. Apparently, she had developed some addicting habits. The lab that she worked at manufactured her substance of choice, which she had started stealing, and eventually got caught. The university didn't press charges, but they kicked her out of the program. Steph said that she's back home now, evaluating her options, finish her education, or accept a similar, inescapable life in our hometown. That wasn't there the last time we saw each other. I said, pointing above her left ankle where, just above it, was a small dark blue butterfly tattoo. You were always so observant, too, she remarked coyly. When did you get it? I asked while shutting the car door that Cole left open. What's so fascinating about it? Steph quickly replied playfully. I kept looking to and from Steph's vibrant face in the butterfly tattoo. I found it rather provocative, like it signified a mysterious side of Stephanie that she either developed while away, or always had that I was just noticing. It was definitely a side of her that I wanted to explore more deeply, so this weekend was the perfect opportunity. So you're not going to tell me? I asked half-jokingly while opening the trunk of my car. And then Steph screamed. The sheer terror in her voice physically shook me as Steph scrambled away from my car and frantically pointed at the trunk while falling into hysterics. When I looked into the trunk, my body completely froze. It felt like time stood still while I processed the grisly scene. Cole's nude body was curled up on top of her bags. His eyes were wide open and permanently frozen in an expression of utter shock. Cole's neck was completely mangled, from which blood was seeping and smeared across his limp body. In those first few seconds of seeing Cole's body, I was hit with a deeply unnerving revelation that made my stomach queasy and sent sharp chills down my spine. If this was Cole crammed in the trunk, I thought, then who was in the car with me driving up? When I looked up from the trunk, I saw everybody had gathered around my car. Steph was still hysterical while Mason and Clark nervously traded and murmured whispers. The commotion even got Marvin's attention, who came back up from the river. What the heck is this, Cooper? Marvin asked loudly upon seeing Cole's body. Cole's dead. What did you do to him? Marvin violently shook his hands while speaking, which made me notice something that he was holding black sweatpants and a red hoodie. The same clothes whoever rode up here with me was wearing. I said nothing at first, especially after sensing the suspicion in Marvin's voice. He looked completely frazzled and was in a very standoffish pose, like he was trying to keep his distance. Everybody else looked similar. I turned to Stephanie who was backed up against a tree and sobbing uncontrollably. When our eyes met, the unfettered terror in her face led me to make an unsettling realization. It was me that they were all afraid of. They think that I did this to Cole. Wait, I said, slowly putting my hands up, which put everyone more on edge. You think that I actually did this to Cole? Why shouldn't we? Mason snapped back, who visibly displayed his sheathed knife. Given the circumstances, I knew the burden of proof was on me, and I had nothing to say that could absolve me on the spot. I lowered my hands and kept them at my sides after Mason with it drew his knife. Mason was also in the military, and although that he no longer served, I didn't doubt his capabilities with a blade. So, what are we going to do? Marvin asked while slowly helping Steph back to her feet. Because there's someone else out there right now, so we have to do something quick. Let's do this, Mason said after a few seconds of silence as he turned to Clark. Why don't you take Steph into town and get help? Marv and I will stay here with Cooper. You know that I didn't do this to Cole, I blurted. Mason looked at me sharply as everybody else headed towards Clark's truck. Don't tell me what I know and don't know right now mason snapped back while pointing towards the tree line what were you and whoever the heck that was gonna do bury him out here throw him in the river were we supposed to be next this is ridiculous i barked back sharing my frustration i don't know who that was we i was already in the car before cole and that other person even got in i didn't even see him leave the house we didn't say a word to each other the whole drive I got my first good look at Cole's body as Mason responded to my remarks. I noticed barbed wiring was wrapped tightly around his neck, and it dug deep into his flesh. The prospect of dying in such a horrific way had sent chills down my spine, and it made me wonder how close I may have been to suffering the same gruesome fate. Answer me, Mason barked loudly, snapping me out of my trance. Did you guys plan this? Is it some sort of twisted game that you idiots are playing? Mason was relentless. Whether he was acting on instinct or out of fear, he had no doubt that I had killed Cole. I was guilty until proven innocent and knew that I needed something more than my word to get vindicated. Wait. I heard Steph say as she walked up to us, still sniffling and visibly shaken. Cooper could be telling the truth. Everyone stared at bewildered at Steph. If whoever had killed Cole just threw his body in the trunk and had those clothes on before getting in the car with Cooper, if they weren't even talking, he could have pulled this off without Cooper noticing anything. I nodded emphatically. We weren't even looking at each other, I quickly added. Nobody said anything for about a minute. Forget it, Mason finally said. Let's all just get out of here and take Cooper with us. There's four of us and one of him. We've got numbers on our side. Mason walked up, grabbing me by the collar and pushed me back against the car. If you look like you're even thinking about trying something, Mason said fiercely as he pressed the tip of the knife against my neck. I'll take you out. I don't know what this is, but I'm scared and I'm not trying to die. Maybe you didn't do anything but right now. The facts don't look good for you. Mason made me walk in front of him and Steph, keeping my hands visible as we rejoined the others. Clark's truck was on and he sat waiting for us in the driver's seat. Upon reaching the truck, Mason shoved me against it and thoroughly patted my pockets. After making sure that I wasn't carrying anything dangerous, he grabbed me by my jacket and walked us around towards the driver's side. Change of plans, Mason said as he walked up to Clark's rolled down window. We're all just gonna get out of here. We need to take Cooper, but we're watching him so you don't have to worry. You cool with that? But Clark didn't respond. His head was pulled back and held in place in the headrest by strands of barbed wire that were tightly wrapped around his bloodied head and neck. Like coal, the barbs dug deep into Clark's neck almost cutting completely through his neck in some spots. Clark's hands were completely mangled, clearly from struggling to try and get free. Steph started screaming again, but not from the sight of Clark's mangled body. She was reacting to something in the woods. As Steph started backtracking and frantically gesturing towards the tree line, I heard heavy rhythmic footsteps coming from the direction that she had pointed and I could just make out a vague figure moving in the shadows. Steph bolted from the truck and blindly ran off into the forest. I looked back at Mason, who was just as terrified. I nudged Mason to snap him out of his shock, who looked at me with a frenzied expression. I don't know what this is, Mason gasped as he kept looking between me and the approaching figure. But I'm not dying here. I then felt a sharp pain just above my hip, and fell to my knees as Mason quickly fled in the same direction as Staff. When I saw that Mason had his blade out, I looked down on my hands that were pressed against where the pain came from, and saw that they were coated in blood. I had been stabbed, I realized, Mason stabbed me. The wound didn't feel very deep but I was bleeding pretty bad and it hurt more with each passing second. I had no time to wallow over it with the approaching figure's footsteps getting louder. Pressing one hand against the wound I got back up to my feet and I staggered toward the general direction that Stefan Mason had fled. I wanted to make a break from my car but wouldn't make it in time without being seen. I had two choices Hide out in the woods until the coast was clear, or head to the river, which was only a few hundred yards from our campsite, and follow it back to the main road. No sooner than I had entered the tree line, however, I was bear-hugged by something that brought me to the ground. They placed one hand over my mouth and firmly held me in place behind a cluster of trees and brush. Shh, I heard Brock whisper, Don't move. A wave of relief swept over me upon realizing that it was Brock. Still pinned to the ground, I could see most of our campsite through a small opening behind our cover. I watched the figure exit the tree line, and I got my first ever glimpse of Wireface. He wasn't very tall, maybe an inch or two under six feet. He had long, lanky arms and a slender but firm-looking physique. He wore a blue checkered plaid shirt, tattered gray overalls, along with thick dark gloves and boots that were smeared with blood, dirt, and mud. He wore a beige burlap sack over his head, which was tightly wrapped in strands of barbed wire that had two small slits for him to see. Wireface slowly surveyed his surroundings before briefly re-entering the tree line. He pulled something squirming out of the forest, and he dragged it next to Clark's truck. It was Marvin, his hands and feet were hogtied and coils of barbed wire were tightly wrapped around his mouth. All he could do was writhe and make muffled cries that were well within earshot. Wireface grabbed a narrow metal pipe from the bed of Clark's truck and looked like he was debating what to do with Marvin. I feared the worst but to my surprise. All Wireface did was set part of the pipe in the fire and re-enter the forest. Desperate to intervene, I tried wriggling free, but Brock kept me immobilized. Are you really that stupid? He hissed in my ear. That's exactly what he wants us to do. He's using Marv as bait. We can't just leave him. I quickly replied at a volume too loud for Brock's comfort, who clamped his hand over my mouth. Are you trying to get us killed? Brock snapped back. Stay quiet. It was a waiting game. I felt just as helpless as Marvin, who could only twist on the ground. I don't know how long we stayed hunkered down, but enough time had passed for me to notice that the fire had started dying. Who was that? I finally whispered to Brock, who soured at my ignorance. Oh, come on, you've heard the stories. Brock quietly replied. Wireface, you know, that's Wireface. My jaw dropped. As in Landry Danes? Brock nodded. You all here tonight just got caught in the crossfire. What do you mean? I asked, turning to face Brock. Brock sighed. It's me, he's after. To explain, Brock segued into telling Wireface's backstory. His name was Landry Danes, a local kid around our age who lived outside of town. A few years ago, Landry was out here camping with friends. The details are sketchy, but he apparently got into some kind of scrum, during which he fell face first into the campfire. Nothing was ever proven, but there are whispers that Landry was deliberately tripped or pushed. Well, Landry survived, but was hideously disfigured, and he wore a burlap sack tied his face. Some kids had bullied him over this and even made a game of ripping off the burlap sack from Landry's head to get a glimpse at his face. It drove Landry to wrap strands of barbed wire around his head, which is how he got his proverbial alias. Then one night, Wireface had attacked a group of kids in a nearby park. He didn't kill anybody but apparently had butchered one person so brutally, he supposedly had begged to be killed. Landry vanished that night and was never caught. The family claimed they didn't know where he was, but many suspected that they were hiding him on their property. Two years later, the Danes' home was destroyed in a fire. No remains were found, and the family was never seen again, except for Wireface. Since then, some around here claim they've encountered Wireface. He has been blamed for disappearances, cattle deaths, and even property damage, but that was all speculation. Or so we thought. I was living out of state when all this happened, but I heard so many different versions of the story. I couldn't tell what parts were and weren't true. One part about it still didn't make sense. Even after hearing Brock's clarified rendition, I still didn't understand why Wireface would be hunting him down. This isn't the first time that I've seen him, he whispered after a long, hesitant pause and I knew just knew that something was going to happen tonight. I narrowed my stare at Brock. What do you mean you knew? I asked sternly, and you didn't say something. It's not that simple, Brock replied sharply. Who would take me seriously? Before inquiring any further, I looked back at the campfire to get a visual on Marvin. He was still squirming and his whimpers were compelling me to run out and save him. But Brock kept me in place. In retrospect, it's probably a good thing that he did because shortly after, Wireface had reappeared. Marvin started twisting and whimpering, but Wireface paid no mind and walked right past him to the campfire. He stared into the flames for a few moments before retrieving the metal pipe that he had previously placed in the fire. My stomach nodded when I saw the pipes, at glowing red tip as Wireface turned towards Marvan, I made one last ditch effort to spring loose, but Brock kept me firmly in place. Just look away, Brock whispered. There's nothing that we can do for him. My view was partially obstructed, but I still watched as Wireface stood over Marvan and stuck the metal pipe's glowing red tip in his eye. A crackly, high-pitched hiss rang out as Marvin began thrashing wildly, and he released a barrage of muffled, agonizing screams. Wireface was twisting the pipe in his hands as he slowly pushed it deeper into Marvin's ocular cavity, clearly trying to prolong his death and inflict the most pain possible. Come on, we gotta go now, Brock whispered as he pulled me away from watching the macabre scene. My trucks at the lot, will get there quicker if we follow the river. Steph and Mason are still out there, I replied, trying to ignore Marvin's muffled screams and pulsating pain that erupted from my stab wound when I began moving. I saw what Mason did to you, he replied. They think that you killed Cole. Do you trust them to trust you? I gave a weak nod as Brock started to pull me away and moved deeper into the woods. And with him poking around here, Brock continued. He'll get to us first before we find anyone. Let's just get help. Heck, maybe they wound up following the river too. I reluctantly went along with Brock, who did make some good points. Maybe I should just worry about getting to safety at this point, I thought. Why go out of my way trying to save someone's life who just moments earlier showed that he had no problem taking mine? These thoughts filled my head as we moved through the woods at a painstakingly slow pace. I guess in some ways that was good, because it kept the pain from my stab wound at ease. It felt like hours but we finally heard of the river's rushing water. I was eager to reach the river bank, but Brock put a heavy hand on my shoulder. We're not out of the woods yet, Brock said quickly. Short distances can be deceiving. He pointed down a few feet in front of us where the moonlight shone on a strand of barbed wire, tied between two trees, just a few inches above the ground. Had Brock not pointed it out, I surely would have tripped over it, and fallen into a few more strands of barbed wiring that were set at varying heights in front of the tripwire. Before I could say anything, something grabbed Brock and spun him around, just as I had spotted its movement in the corner of my eye. It then got in between us and shoved me to the ground. I lay hunched over on my side, pressing my hand over the stab wound, but I was quickly turned onto my backside, and I saw the tip of Mason's blade just inches from my face. ''Mason, relax!'' Brock said quickly, walking up to him and placing a hand on Mason's outstretched arm holding the knife. ''He killed Cole!'' Mason replied, keeping his eyes fixed on me even while lowering his arm holding the knife. They gotta be in this together. No, Brock said softly. He just used him to get to us. Brock pulled Mason away which gave me some time to get recollected and wait for the pain coming from my stab wound to subside. At first, all I heard were their whispering murmurs, but then Brock and Mason began to argue. While trying to regain my composure, I only picked up a few phrases of their exchange. Brock telling Mason that he didn't have to do that to me, and Mason saying something along the lines of he didn't know who to trust. While slowly sitting up, it was something that Mason said to Brock, we're here because of you, that I found peculiar and caught my attention. I tried getting back on my feet when something struck the side of my head, that sent a sharp burning streak across the left side of my face. The impact threw me back to the ground, from which I could feel without having to see for myself that blood was spilling from my face's left side. As my vision readjusted while slowly sitting up, the first thing that I saw was Wireface walk past me and close in on Brock and Mason. I didn't expect what happened next, As soon as Brock saw Wireface closing in, he grabbed Mason by the collar and practically threw him towards Wireface in a single motion, before scurrying off into the woods. As he fled, Brock maniacally started screaming phrases like, Not me, and I'm not dying. Mason practically stumbled into Wireface, but tried pushing himself off him and took a blind swing. Wireface effortlessly thwarted the attempted attack grabbed Mason by his collar, and headbutted him twice with his barbed wire face. The two strikes littered Mason's face with cuts and punctures that bled profusely. He seemed stunned by Wireface's two bashes who then took his free hand, pressed it against Mason's face, and started violently twisting in a grinding windshield wiper-like motion. Mason started screaming in sheer agony and wildly thrashed about, appearing totally helpless to break free of Wireface's grasp. I picked up sounds of ripping and scraping which is when I realized the hand that Wireface was mashing Mason's face with was also wrapped in barbed wire. I watched in horror as Wireface then grabbed Mason's shirt with both his hands and threw him into the tripwire that he had set up, causing Mason to fall and get entangled in the other strands of barbed wiring that he had heaved in between the trees. Despite some blood getting in my eyes, I got back to my feet right as Wireface began looking between me and Mason, whose body twisted and flailed as he released some of the most horrible blood-curdling shrieks that I had ever heard. How could Brock do that? I thought while waiting for my fight-or-flight instincts to kick in. They were best friends. I thought they would both take a bullet for each other without thinking twice. How could Brock turn on somebody like that so quickly, use them as their escape decoy? My train of thought was interrupted when Wireface began stepping in my direction. Screw it, I thought before turning and sprinting towards the river. Mason's screams persisted and rang throughout the woods as I ran, sending sharp chills down my spine and twisting my stomach into tight knots. Maybe Brock had the right idea. Why risk my life for somebody who showed no regard for mine? Somebody who literally had stabbed me earlier tonight? And what about Brock, I thought. Could I even trust him after what he just did to Mason? Would he do the same to me if he had the chance? While contemplating these thoughts, I had inadvertently stumbled down an embankment that brought me to the river, coming to a halt on the muddy bank. I lay semi-coiled in a ball, gritting my teeth from the sharp burning that came from the stab wound. After the pain became manageable, I slowly crawled toward the river shore to wash off my face. The left side burned when I applied water to it, and I could feel the lacerations that Wireface had made when he struck me with that same hand that he wrapped in barbed wire. I was able to walk but the pain coming from my wound every time I took a stop or a deep breath was excruciating. I didn't see any footprints along the riverbank, making me wonder what became of Brock. Plus, Stephanie was still out there too, I thought, stopping in my tracks. Should I go back and find her? The pulsating pain coming from my stab wound prompted me to quickly dismiss the thought. It started to rain. A light drizzle quickly turned into an all-out downpour. Despite being injured and soaked to the bone, I continued following the river and eventually had reached the lot. I walked up to Brock's pickup, which was the only car in the lot and peered inside to see if it was occupied. Brock's truck was locked, so in light of the circumstances, I smashed the driver's window with a rock to get inside. I started feeling around the driver's side visor where I knew Brock kept a spare key. After finding it and turning on the car, I caught a glimpse of myself in the rearview mirror. Three deep gashes and about a half dozen puncture marks ran across the left side of my face. I was lucky to get away with just that, unable to even fathom those horrific ways that the others met their demise. I brandished a few other scrapes, cuts, and bruises, but my biggest concern was the stab wound, which still seethed with pain. I sped out of the lot and onto the dirt road. It still downpoured, and even with the windshield wipers, it was difficult to see clearly. While rounding a bend, I noticed something standing in the road. The flashes of it's plaid and brownish, beige clothes were all I needed to know that it was Wireface. Gripping the steering wheel, I didn't hesitate to stop on the accelerator, and I plowed right into Wireface. His limp upper torso slammed on the truck's head before getting sucked under, and it was turned into a speed bump. After feeling the entire car run him over, I slammed on the brakes and I stared at Wireface's battered body through my side view mirror. I waited several minutes before stepping out of the truck, I probably should have kept driving but I wanted to confirm that he was actually dead. Another part of me hoped that he was taking his last breath so I could observe his final moments with my own eyes. There was a brown burlap sack over his head. He wore a tattered plaid shirt that was blue and green in color along with dark grey overalls. His limbs were bent and twisted in different directions which was when I noticed that both of his feet were missing. It looked like they were literally torn off his legs, and when I turned towards the spot where he stood, I saw two fleshy stumps protruding from a pair of shoes situated in the center of the road. Moving away from the body, I squinted in bewilderment as a strong uneasiness began to materialize. I realized tight strands of barbed wire ran across the road, and they were tightly wrapped around the severed feet, holding them in place. One of them also had a subtle detail that made me begin to physically tremble. Just above the left foot's ankle was a small dark blue butterfly tattoo. No, 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 no. I murmured. Feeling the panic unravel as I scrambled back towards the body and pulled the burlap sack off its head. My fears were confirmed when I found myself staring into Steph's lifeless eyes. The sight sent sharp pains shooting out of my stab wound as I fell to my knees and began sobbing Steph's name. Her mouth hung agape, like it was frozen mid-scream as if trying to say, Stop. It was an accident, I thought. Anybody else would have done the same thing. How could I have known? She looked just like him. And that was when I noticed the clothes in burlap sack she wore, although similar-looking didn't identically match Wireface's attire. There was nothing that I could do now, I thought, and I slowly stood back up trying not to disturb my stab wound. I kissed my hand and was about to place it on Steph's forehead when I spotted something emerge from the tree line, Wireface. He just stood there in the pouring rain, seeming like he was both taunting me and lavishing over my reaction of running over Stephanie. A naughty queasiness formed in my stomach, and before he had a chance to get any closer, I listened to my instincts and scrambled back into Brock's truck. I caught one last fleeting image of Wireface in the rearview mirror, who stood alongside the road, canting his head and watching as I sped away in the pouring rain. The rest of the night was a blur. My stab wound was apparently much worse than I thought. I lost a lot of blood and died to be hospitalized. The police eventually cleared me as a suspect, but there were still a few in the forest that weren't convinced. The police discovered four bodies and conducted a thorough sweep of the woods, but they found no trace of our attacker. It wasn't in the official report, but the bodies were supposedly found seated around the campfire held in upright lifelike poses with an intricate entanglement of barbed wiring. Circumstantially, the evidence was there, but police had nothing physical to officially declare these killings were the work of Landry Danes. I want to say that this was my only encounter with Wireface, however, it's not where my story ends. Although I barely escaped being one of Wireface's first victims, it was unbeknownst to me that, His reign of terror had only begun. Thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this week's episode of Creepscast. Looking for an easy way to eat well and save money this year? Cut back on expensive takeouts and delivery and get started with HelloFresh. You'll love how fast, easy and affordable it is to whip up a restaurant-quality meal right in your own kitchen. With over 35 weekly recipes, they have the options that you are looking for to help you achieve your goals this year. Choose a calorie smart and carb smart recipes, or even customize select meals so they are exactly how you like them. One of my recent go-to meals has been the yogurt marinated chicken with garlic sauce. The couscous on the side was amazing and it took me less than 10 minutes of prep. I highly recommend trying this one out if you haven't already. Not only does HelloFresh let you save time, but it also helps you save money. HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. Additionally, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from. There's something for everyone. Go to HelloFresh.com MrCreeps21 and use code MrCreeps21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com MrCreeps21. And use code Mr. Creeps21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. Thanks again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I work in tech support, and you will never believe the footage we found on an old laptop, written by genuinely Graham and Papa Mishka89. I can't believe Kieran made us come in today. I clicked my tongue, carelessly brushing my hand over a stack of last week's laptops, nearly sending the top one flying off the counter. As if we have nothing better to do on a Saturday afternoon. Petrov grunted with what I could only assume was agreement, keeping his eyes glued to a scantily clad woman, crossing and uncrossing her legs on the desktop of the latest plum book. I pursed my lips. Weren't plum books supposed to be, like, virus-proof? This looked like a multi-parasitic virus, too, with a flash mob of tasteless gifts dancing across the screen. Looks pretty bad, I sighed, nodding in his direction. That one alone will take ages to fix. We'll be stuck here for hours. Petrov went slightly before turning to look at me. A hint of rouge had traveled up his collar and his eyes were darting wildly across my face, the way they always did when our gazes met. I put on my most convincing smile. Petrov was a nice guy, truly. Shy, modest, and a little unorthodox, but kind nonetheless. I've gotten to know him quite a bit since I had started working here last spring. We've gone out for drinks a few times, as friends during which he let it slip about his love for rock-balancing and noodling. My parents own a lake house down south. He said right after he had clarified that noodling wasn't a culinary skill. It's nice there in the summer, maybe you and I could go sometime. When we're not working, that is. That had been my cue to turn red as I racked my brain for a good enough excuse. I wasn't declining because we were co-workers, no. I generally wasn't too bothered about corporate roles. It was just, well, Petrov really wasn't my type. I ended up telling him that my entire summer was already booked up. It was my best attempt at sparing his feelings, which were ruthlessly seeping into his cheeks and even the tips of his ears. I also worried that I had been giving him the wrong idea, so we never went out for drinks after that, coming up with excuse after excuse until he had finally stopped asking. Perhaps the other ones will be easier, he uttered, clearing his throat twice. Why don't you check the box? I squinted at it, an overwhelming sense of disdain bubbling up in my chest. Lauren and Mildred were no doubt at the spa by now, probably in the process of comparing two identical colors of nail varnish for their pedicures, probably laughing about how I was stuck at work on the weekend. Probably. I doubt it, I said, slipping off of the swivel chair and making my way towards the box in question. Uh, I bet you ten bucks that at least three of these have keyboard stains. Petrov, let out an awkward giggle. You're on. I thumbed through the laptops without particular interest. Some were dense with stickers from video games, others covered in what I could only assume was black sharpie. One of them had vents so crusty that they actually made noise when I managed to pry the lid open. Ah, oh, gross. I tossed it back onto the pile, wiping my hands on my jeans. And to think the people who bring these in look so normal. If I didn't know any better, I would guess they were pulled straight out of the dumpster. I turned to Petrov, my tainted hands outstretched in front of me, but he wasn't listening. In fact, he didn't seem to be looking either. His gaze was transfixed on something over my shoulder. Hello, I sang, waving my disgusting hands in the air in front of him. Earth to Petrov. Without saying anything, he placed his hands over my shoulders and pushed me aside. I flinched at the unexpected touch, but he was so absorbed in whatever he was looking at, I don't even think that he noticed. What are you, I began. Bracing myself to face a masked figure on the other side of the counter. Reactions like this were unlike Petrov. He was always so calm and collected. I couldn't help feeling a pang of fear in my stomach. But there was no masked man, no grizzly bear, coyote, or catfish. I mean, he said that he was into noodling, right? Could catfish theoretically evoke this sort of reaction? Relieved that there didn't seem to be any immediate emergency, I snickered at my own joke. What are you laughing at? Petrov whispered with his back still to me. He was hunched over the pile of laptops that I had just contracted. Do you know what this is? He lifted the crusty vented laptop for me to see. Uh, a revolting vessel of dried fluids. I cocked my head to the side as though I was appraising a painting. Before adding, three thousand. He sniffed, brushing my joke away into oblivion, and tapped against the aluminum finish. Look at the logo, Ginny. I squinted at it, trying my best to ignore the crispy bits sticking out of the back vents. S S E. Essence Petrov's eyes were wide and gleaming. He looked like a child during Christmas. It's an Essence laptop. I snorted. Well, that sounds about right, all things considered. But Petrov shook his head. Do you know how old this is? Essence went bankrupt in 95. I pursed my lips, trying my best not to laugh. I wonder why. Clearly unfazed by my sarcasm, Petrov flipped the lid open and started mashing the power button. I haven't seen one of these in 15 years. I figured the last ones would be in a museum by now. I'm surprised if it still works. I watched as the screen gradually came to life. Pixel by pixel loaded up the cartoony desktop icons, a calculator app, a drab looking media player, a notepad and a folder named GPH. Hey, those are my initials. I pointed at the folder, my acrylic nail making a rainbow indent on the screen. Jenny P. Hopkins. He nodded. Or it could also mean gallons per hour, generalized proportional hazard, gestational proteinuric hypertension. Uh, Just open it, I scoffed. Petrov could be such a smarty sometimes. Let's see what it is. Ginny, you know that we can't do that. He protested, typing control panel into the search bar. Let me just figure out what the issue is. I'm not sure that we even have the means to fix something like this. Do you know who brought it in? I shook my head, I and the rest of the laptop strewn across the counter. I thought you knew. I wasn't here for half of these. It must have been Kieran then. Hey, see if there's a phone number or something in the... He trailed off. What? What is it? I crouched down beside him, trying to figure out what we were looking at. Is it the folder? The last part was meant to be a joke, but Petrov's expression remained grim. It might as well be, he said to my surprise. There's nothing else on this laptop. I raised my eyebrow. What do you mean there's nothing else on it? As in no other files? He shook his head. There's nothing on it. No control panel, no applications. An empty drive. But what about all these? I tapped the screen where the notepad calculator and media player were nestled. I mean, they're apps, aren't they? Petrov didn't respond, instead scooping up my hand in his and placing it on top of the mouse. See for yourself. I swallowed, directing the cursor toward the calculator icon. Double click, nothing. I tried again, this time with the media player. Clicking and dragging the cursor until the vein of my thumb bulged. Maybe it's just frozen, I suggested. In a way, Petrov agreed. And then, before I could find the delete key, added, It's a wallpaper. I gawked at him. A wallpaper? Look, he said, gently reclaiming the mouse. I can't move or click anything besides the folder. Once he said it, I could clearly see that the icons looked slightly washed out, but I had thought that it was just because of the 25-year-old monitor. For the first time in weeks, my curiosity was piqued. A laptop with nothing on it. how was that even possible? You want to do the honors? Petrov asked, giving me a little side smirk. I snatched the mouse and double-clicked the rectangular icon. It flew open at once with a large white window that took up most of the screen. Inside sat a single file with no preview thumbnail. It was named GPH.AVI. Petrov and I exchanged glances. It's a video, I said stupidly. It is, he agreed. Do you want to watch it? I hesitated. Mysterious videos on grubby laptops certainly weren't my favorite. Heck, I never even chanced any videos on social media, always fearing the worst. If it was concealed behind an opaque cover, it probably wasn't for me. What if it's... I Something horrifying. Like what? said Petrov, refusing to cooperate. Think about it, Jenny. Why would anybody put anything illegal on a laptop that they needed fixing? It's probably just a video of somebody's family or a wedding or, ooh, maybe it's one of those old pirated movies. Okay, okay, I conceded, not wanting to back out of what was technically my own idea. Just play it. Well, technically I can't, Petrov admitted with dismay. There is no media player, remember? I need to transfer it onto one of our computers. I nodded watching him fish out a USB stick from one of the drawers. Now this really seemed like a bad idea. A cold chill crawled up my bare arms and I realized that the sky outside was growing dark. It was almost 5pm. Only ten minutes to go until the end of our shift. Maybe I could still catch up to Lauren and Mildred at the spa. Now here it is. Petrov's voice interrupted my thoughts. You ready to play? I chewed my inner lip. I knew that Petrov was only doing this because I had expressed a desire to open the folder and I couldn't let the principles go now. Besides, what if it was something life-changing, like the location of a treasure or the answers to a cold murder case? I'm ready, I mumbled, less confidently than intended. For the first few seconds of the video, the screen was black. Maybe it's the format. I began but was immediately cut off by a faint sound of static. A black and white image came into view. Well, it seemed like an image at first. Before I realized it was the feed from the overhead security camera pointed at the counter. It's security footage from... I choked up. From the store? I felt Petrov tensing up beside me. What the heck was going on? I could tell the video was playing by the horizontal lines dancing across the screen, but there were no people in the shot. The store was completely empty. I squinted at the timestamp at the bottom right of the screen. December 3rd, 2022. Saturday, 1.46. Petrov must have had the same idea because, before I could even open my mouth, he whispered, It's from yesterday, last night to be precise. The footage was shrouded in darkness and the digital clock at the bottom indicated that no one had set foot into the store for at least seven hours. What? My mouth was dry. Why would, how can last night's footage be on that laptop? It was supposed to be a question, but Petrov didn't answer. He was leaning forward now, expecting some invisible speck on the screen. What? What is it? I demanded, leaning in closer to see. He pointed to the wall adjacent to the counter. Look at that. I inched closer. What? I don't see it. The vent cover. He paused the video to zoom in. It's on the floor, see? I saw. The large rectangular wall vent that was always such a nuisance when it came to decorating for Christmas. It was now wide open. With its cover lying idly on the floor beside it. Maybe Kieran. I began but stopped short. A woman with a short bob and glasses was navigating through the shelves. She moved slowly and awkwardly, her palms outstretched in front of her as though she was sleepwalking. I heard Petrov draw a whistling breath next to me and my stomach lurched. Is that you? He whispered, his voice laced with something I couldn't tell what. Sweat was pooling under my arms and a lump rising in my throat. No, it's... I croaked. It couldn't be. We watched in stunned silence as the woman made her way to the counter and disappeared into the vent, pulling the grate cover back into place behind her and then the screen went black. I... I don't understand. I wailed turning to face Petrov, that wasn't me, Petrov looked introspective for a moment, but the camera, I don't care about the camera, last night at 1am I was sleeping in my own bed 10 miles away and I added for good measure, I don't sleepwalk. Silence descended upon us again and I found myself growing restless and uncomfortable. It was exactly 5pm now and time to go home. The sky outside was bluish black and a low rumbling in the distance was foreshadowing rain, but Petrov didn't move. Well, if it wasn't you, he said slowly as if considering every word, then we must have had an intruder in the store. Or maybe, I suggested, Kieran had hired somebody too. To what? Sleepwalking in her pajamas around the vents at midnight. The corners of his mouth twitched, but his expression remained shrouded. You ever wonder what's down there? Where? In the vents. Plenty of space for a person, maybe even two. It's gotta lead somewhere, right? I didn't even know that you could go in there. What the heck, Petrov, you're freaking me out. Let's just go home. He contemplated for a moment. Maybe just a quick little peek. I stared at him. Do you want to go into the vents right now? Yeah, why not? The shift's over, his doors are closed. Might as well do some exploring. I bit my lip. I'm sorry, Petrov. I promised my friends that I would meet them for dinner. Maybe next time though, okay? I slid off my chair and headed for the locker room when a metallic rattling had stopped me in my tracks. I spun on my heel to find Petrov kneeling in front of the vent cover, meticulously dislodging the corners with his hands. He set it down on the floor with a faint clatter. What are you doing? He turned to look at me, a playful smirk on his face. Well, if you won't join me, I'll guess I'll have to go alone. And with that, he disappeared into the vent. The aluminum flooring creaked and groaned in protest as I crawled through the vent. It felt as if I were traveling through a portal to a new realm. And maybe I was. The path was impossibly dark. I slipped my penlight from my belt and I clicked it on. I expected to see the tunnel end at some point, but it didn't. Not before the light was swallowed up by the abysmal darkness at least. Suddenly, it didn't feel like the fun adventure that I had thought it would be an uneasy twinge was slowly swirling my stomach. Be careful. I heard Ginny holler from somewhere distant, back at the store. I didn't bother responding. For some reason, I felt like if I did, something deep within these walls would know that I was here, and I didn't want to alert it to my presence. Besides, it's not like Ginny cared for me. Well, not in that way, anyway. I knew that I wasn't delusional. But I couldn't stop how I felt about her, and that was the worst part. Crap, I should be at the end by now. I had traveled a few hundred feet at least. Logic would say that I would be in the rear parking lot by now. This didn't make any sense at all. Just as I was starting to flirt with the idea of somehow spinning around and making my way back, it felt like the floor had been taken off from under me. My guts launched up into my throat as I dropped several feet, before sprawling across beige carpet. What the heck? I muttered as I struggled to my feet. Wow. I stood awestruck with my mouth agape. I couldn't even comprehend what this place was, this room. It was enormous like a parking garage. But every single surface, except for the can lights, were covered in beige carpet. Carpeted beams lurched upwards to a fifteen-foot-tall ceiling. It was warm and cozy, but so very empty and vast. How was this possible? Where was I? Somewhere below the store, underground. I had so many questions, but not even an inkling to a rational explanation. Just wait until I tell Jenny about this. I was about to head back up the vent tunnel when I spotted a blue door on the other side of the carpeted room. Was that there before? It must have been, but I hadn't seen it just a moment ago. Curiosity got the best of me. Snags of frayed threads grabbed the soles of my sneakers as I made my way to the door. The handle was brass and cool to the touch. I half expected it to be locked, but It twisted freely and the door opened with a groan. another room, one with about two inches of standing water. It quickly started to rush in and permeate the carpet. I jumped through the threshold and slammed the door to stop the leak. I felt the water soaking through my shoes immediately and saturate my socks. Ugh. The walls were covered in white subway tile. The fluorescent lights danced across the pale blue water. More pearled porcelain lay underneath. Weird, I whispered. This room was much smaller, almost like a connecting room you would see at a doctor's office. A red door rested in a maroon frame not ten feet to the other side. The ceiling was so low that I could feel the hair on the top of my head graze against the grout joints as I made my way across. I placed my hand on the brass knob and I nearly recoiled. It was so warm, as if flames flickered on the other side. A silent prayer that it wasn't a fire lay on my lips as I slowly pried it open. I sighed in relief. There was no inferno. But the relief quickly died somewhere in my chest. The eeriness of the hallway that lay before me caused the hair on the back of my neck to stand up. Goose flesh broke out across my arms. Lockers lined both sides of the hall as the fluorescent lights flickered above. A red emergency light spun a strobing pattern halfway down just before the light had ended. The darkness at the end of the hall seemed overwhelming. Something was there, I could feel it. Whispers crept into my ears. They weren't discernible, almost like chatter from a crowd. Too many voices to make any single one out. A low vibration growled across the floor, sending a tremor up through my knees. Just as I felt a scream bubble up into my throat, I felt someone grab my hand and pull me back through the door into the water room. I could hear the red door slam behind me as I almost went face first into the tiled water. I spun around with a fist raised over my head ready to sock whoever it was in self-defense. Ginny, I gasped, borrowing my arm. Why were you gone for so long? She asked. What are you doing down here? I came looking for you after a while. I'm just so glad that you're okay. She wrapped her arms around me in a gentle embrace. I went stiff as a board at the unexpected touch. She had never hugged me before. But as she nestled her face into my collarbone, I melted like butter. A small ache began to throb in my heart. Um, well yeah, it's okay. I'm fine. I was so worried. Her breath was hot on my neck, sending a tingle up my spine. It's okay, really. I dared to run my hand through her short hair. My stomach did somersaults when she didn't smack it away. Let's go home, she whispered, standing back for me. Her eyes were different. They were full of warmth. She laced her fingers in mine and pulled me towards the blue door. Okay. My mind was blown. The affection was even more strange than the entire existence of these back rooms. As she opened the door, the water began to rush under the carpet like before, She giggled as she pushed me through the opening and shut the door behind us. What has gotten into you, Jenny? I chuckled. What do you mean? She bit her lower lip playfully. You're never like this with with me, you know. Well, I want to be. You do? Yes, she uttered softly, grabbing my chin between her thumb and index finger. My heart thundered in my chest like a rabbit thrashing against its cage. She gazed deeply into my eyes and then pulled me into a kiss. Her lips were soft and warm. They were everything that I had imagined them to be. Her tongue slipped behind my teeth and danced with mine. An urge stirred beneath my jeans as I felt her hands fumble at my waist. Just as I became lost in her, the light suddenly went out. Everything went black. I tried to grab Ginny but I felt her slip away. I fumbled a few feet into the darkness, trying to find her but my hands swiped the air fruitlessly. Ginny, where are you? I shouted. The lights flickered back on. I spun around and she was nowhere to be seen. The sea of beige carpet stretched out in the expanse before me, but no Ginny. A thumping. It sounded like someone was traveling through the vent at the edge of the room, the one that led back to the store. She must have gotten freaked out when the lights went out and booked it back to the tunnel. I sprinted over to the opening. Jenny, wait for me. I clambered up through the vertical section and pulled myself through until I was on my hands and knees once again. Jenny, I called but to no reply. I fumbled through the tunnel as fast as I could. Pain radiated from deep within my kneecaps but I pressed on. After a few minutes I could see the light of the store shine through the darkness. I went even faster, half afraid and half dying to be back in her arms. Even through the absolute insanity of the back rooms, all I could think about was her. It was finally our time. I spilled out into the store. Jenny, I hollered. Petrov, what's going on? I gasped as he came flying out of the vent, nearly knocking down a nearby shelf of Bluetooth accessories. Are you alright? He certainly didn't look alright. His blonde hair was disheveled and his forehead was slick with sweat. Why was he running? I'm fine, I'm fine, Petrov panted. Are you okay? Why did you run off like that? Did you see something? I raised my eyebrow at the barrage of questions. What are you talking about? I just went to the locker room to get my stuff. I raised the umbrella that I was clutching to illustrate my point. What was his problem? But he stared at me as though I was the crazy one. No, before that, in the carpet room. What carpet room, Petrov? What did you find in there? He was trembling, although the temperature in the store was about 78 degrees. It doesn't matter, I'm just happy that. He reached out and cut my hand in his, pulling my body towards them. My stomach lurched as I remembered that I had left my pepper spray in my jogging jersey this morning. What the heck are you doing? I demanded, in the most self-assured tone that I could muster. Hesitation flashed in his eyes and I took the opportunity to snatch my hand away. But, he stuttered, but what about our kiss? On second thought, perhaps pepper spray wouldn't have been enough anyway. Petrov had obviously gone crazy. Petrov, I began, taking a deep breath in hopes that it would alleviate the lump of disdain rising in my throat. Sit down. Let's talk about this. As he perched on one of these swivel chairs at the counter, I fumbled in my handbag pulling out a worn-out looking water bottle. He shook his head at it. Why are you doing this, Jenny? I promise that I won't be upset if you just tell me why you ran away. If it got too much for you, I understand. We can take it slow. Just please. Petrov made a defeated gesture with his hands. I leaned on the countertop, wondering if he had really lost it. Perhaps calling the authorities wouldn't be the worst idea. I mean, who? Can you tell me the truth? What truth, Petrov? I'll be honest. You sound. I bit my tongue before I could say the word "crazy." Not wanting to provoke him. I mean, who knew what he was capable of in the state? You sound hurt. Now I'm sorry if I said or did anything to cause that. It wasn't my intention. Then why did you run for me? He persisted, wiping the sweat poking out above his upper lip. In the carpet room. Uh, Not again with the carpet room. Petrov, I never went into any carpet room. When you entered the vent, I went to the locker room to get my stuff. And then you came out five minutes later looking like this. Now, I don't know what... You didn't. He swallowed, his eyes darting across the room. Follow me. No, I cried with a little too much enthusiasm. His face fell, so I quickly added, I was just in a hurry to meet my friends. But then his expression shifted from dismay to alarm. Who was with me in the He jumped up from his chair and charged towards the computer before I could stop him. When I circled the corner and joined him, he was already clacking away furiously at the keyboard. What what are you doing? I asked carefully. He grunted as though it couldn't have been more obvious. Rewinding the camera, I glanced at it. It was the same camera that we had watched the footage from only a half hour earlier. It was the same camera that was pointed directly at the gaping vent. Maybe, I suggested, maybe if you go home and get some rest. To say that Petrov was a hard worker would be a severe understatement. He always came to work before anyone else, and he refused to leave until everything in the store was picture perfect. He took on every additional shift in responsibility, and he took great pride in his career. Okay, so this is where I entered the vent. He mumbled under his breath as his words were illustrated on the monitor. I jabbed at the screen, and this is where I walked towards the locker room, see? My camera counterpart rolled her eyes as she turned away from the vent. I prayed that Petrov wouldn't notice. We sat in silence as the video footage played back to us, the second on the timestamp ticking by painfully slowly. Maybe if you fast? No! Petrov's tone was suddenly irate. As soon as we start meddling or interfering in any way, the authenticity is lost. I need to see the whole thing as is. I didn't dare say anything after that not even when I appeared on the screen once more five minutes later, carrying my handbag in my right hand, and an umbrella in my left. Okay, here we go. Petrov clenched his fist, leaving a pattern of perspiration on the surface of the computer mouse. It's a moment of truth. I pursed my lips, suddenly dreading his reaction when he found out that I wasn't lying. Petrov must have felt it too, because his shoulders tensed up and a shadow of a vein bulged in his neck. Look, I began, trying my best to think of a way to amend the situation. When a panic-stricken Petrov spilled out of the vent on camera, as though the devil himself was chasing him. Jenny, he called. Petrov, what's going on? The image of me rushed over to meet him. I diverted my eyes from the monitor to glance at Petrov. He was studying the screen, a droplet of sweat trickling down his right temple. His knuckles were white and his fingernails were digging into his palms. Listen, I said trying to distract him. How about I ditch my friends and we go out for drinks again, just you and me. I flinched at how unnatural my tone sounded, but I couldn't just leave him there. I knew if I did that he would spend hours analyzing the same five minutes of tape over and over zooming in and out, looking for invisible dots or ghost orbs, or whatever it was that he was expecting to see. I was hoping that he would jump at the opportunity, but he didn't even look at me. Ginny, he said, his voice an indistinct mumble. You don't understand what I saw in that vent. Well, let's go in and then you can show me, I interrupted, I was certain that whatever it was, it was simply the product of Petrov's weary mind in solitude. It wouldn't happen again, I was sure of it. He turned to face me, his eyes wide. We can't do that. Why not? I almost wanted to laugh but felt like that would be disrespectful. For a moment, he looked like he was grappling with thought. Because, because, I wouldn't put you in danger like that, Ginny. The agitation in his eyes melted away, and for a moment I got a glimpse of tenderness in his gaze. It sent a shiver down my spine, which I shook off quickly. I needed to get out of here before it, whatever it was, got to me too. It was Petrov, for God's sake. Okay, well, then how about those drinks? I clasped my hands with an audible pop, hoping that it would snap me out of this new feeling that I didn't care for. Shall we go? We can talk more about it on the way. Petrov sighed. It was blatantly obvious that he wanted to go, but he was conflicted in his priorities. The video now depicted us talking over the counter facing one another. I had proved my point. Let me just turn this off, he said, unclenching his fists and reaching for the mouse. Can you close up the vent? But before I could even take a single step, the video feed stopped me in my tracks. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Petrov was frozen too. Something was making its way out of the open vent. We had been talking too much at the counter to notice it. It was alien, with sharp looking limbs and long fingers, reaching all the way down to its knees. Its skin was white and almost translucent and its bald head far too small to be human. It slipped through the opening in a quick and effortless motion, almost as though it were gliding through air, and it disappeared behind a row of shelves just as I had circled the counter to join Petrov at the computer. And then the video cut out. We stared at the blank screen in silence. My heart was thundering in my chest and my eyes kept darting across the room to the shelves adjacent to the vent. There was no way, no way this could be happening to me, to us. For the first time in my life, I clutched Petrov's hand. Five minutes ago, I would have given anything to have Ginny's hand in mine again, but now I hardly noticed it. Fear crept up the nape of my neck and choked off all higher brain function. Flight was all that was left. Door, now, run! Run! It was all that I could muster as I yanked Jenny in the direction of the storefront. Petrov, slow down! I heard a yell behind me, but I couldn't. My legs, bound like a deer for the exit. Her footfall smacked loudly behind me and desperate to keep up. Just as we had rounded the corner to the double doors, I felt her palm rip away from my own. A scream cut through the store as I hit the brakes on my heels. I tried to spin around too fast and my body slipped out over my knees and I landed harshly on my shoulder. I looked up just in time to catch a glimpse of it carrying Ginny off in the other direction. No, stop. I screeched, scrambling back to my feet. I chased after them but it was so fast. I had never seen anything move like it before. She seemed to be weightless in its arms. As I rounded the shelves, I got one glimpse of the terror on Ginny's face as she was sucked into the vent with the creature. A silent scream plastered among a tapestry of freckles. Ginny, I cried, but it was too late. She was gone. I leapt through the vent after them. My mind was numb with static as I pounded my hands and knees through the aluminum portal to the back rooms. Only after I had felt like I had been traveling entirely too long did I reach the pitfall. My stomach flipped in my abdomen as I fell to the ground. The air was knocked from my lungs as I clashed against a stone floor. I gasped for breath as I rolled to my side. This wasn't the carpet room. What the heck? I was on a platform that was made from a stone slab. It floated amongst other slabs inside of a large bog. The water was a greenish hue, and clumps of moss floated by lazily in a gentle current. I looked up to ensure the vent was above me. The metal opening hung in the sky and disappeared into a fog just above it. How was this possible? A slamming sound pulled me from my wonderment. A golden door lay six slabs away, its frame somehow suspended in the fog. Ginny! I shot it as I quickly leapt from one slab to the other, but careful enough not to slip into the murky waters below. I grabbed a hold of the golden knob and threw the door open outward. Water rushed around my feet in a stream. The room was a huge bathroom, one that you would see in an airport but about a hundred times larger. I hopped through the threshold but didn't bother closing the door. What the heck is with the water? I grumbled. It was almost up to my calf. Row after row of stalls lined the walls. The partition hung open where I could see the toilets were overflowing. The very last stall on the left wasn't a stall at all, but a green door. I thrashed through the water. This door had an inward swing, causing the water to throw it open, smacking it against the adjacent wall. I spilled, threw into the next room and struggled to close it. It took all of my strength to push it back into the frame until the latch had clicked. Petrov? I spun around. Ginny. My mouth fell open. There were two of them identical. Oh my god, Petrov. One of them ran to me and wrapped her arms around me. Instinctively, I almost pulled her in closer, but I pushed her away instead. What the heck is going on? I motioned my hand back and forth between them. She's not me, I'm the real Ginny. The one that had embraced me pleaded with eyes full of tears. Petrov, listen, she is not the real Ginny. I woke up in this church after that thing brought me through the vent. The other Ginny put up her hands to show innocence. She's a liar, it's me. I woke up in here. The other cried. Okay, both of you shut it for a second. I need to think. I took a moment to look around for the first time since I had entered the room. It was a large cathedral with rows of pews and stained glass windows. A shudder traveled down my spine at the reminiscence of a Catholic school. I looked back at the two of them. They both seemed genuinely grim with fear. Listen, Petrov. The one that hugged me before now reached out for my hand. She laced her fingers in mine and gazed up at me with pleading eyes. This one is very touchy, I thought. Ginny had never been that way. Not towards me, not until, well, the carpet roam. I pulled my hand away. Petrov, her lips trembled. I looked to the other Ginny and held up my hand. She took it after brief hesitation. This had to be her. Let's go, I whispered to my Ginny. A tear cascaded down her cheek as she nodded her head in agreement. Petrov, don't! I'm the real Ginny. The other begged. You don't follow us, do you hear me? If you do, I'll kill you. I swear that I will, and I meant it. Petrov, she mouthed, reaching out for me again. I knocked her hand away. Don't follow us. I aint Ginny. Towards the door and flung it open. Water rushed in as before and we had to press our bodies against the frame to fart our way into the overgrown restroom. The water was so much higher now, up to our ways. There was no closing the door. We waded through the depths as fast as we possibly could. I glanced over my shoulder every few seconds to make sure the other Jinny wasn't following. The tension in my shoulder should have released after I saw that she wasn't, time and time again. Once we got to the golden frame, I saw that the gentle current of the bog was now like a roaring river. One misstep and we'd be swept away. Petrov, I'm scared. Jenny's fingers had tightened around my own. Me too, but it'll be okay. Just jump when I jump, okay? I reassured her. She shook her head in agreement. We timed out the jumps perfectly from slab to slab. Careful not to plunge into the certain death of the stream. Okay, you go up first. I'll give you a boost. She nodded again as I grabbed her waist to help her hop into the vent. I pushed onto the soles of her shoes to help her clear into the horizontal portion of the tunnel. I looked back once more. The other one hadn't followed. I let out a sigh of relief and pulled myself through the opening. After a few minutes, we were back in the store. Jinny helped me pull the nearest shelf over to the vent to barricade the portal. Once we were safe, she broke down in tears and heaving sobs. I wrapped my arms around her and she didn't pull away. She melted against me, weeping into my chest. It's okay, it's okay. I ran my hand over her wet hair. Exhaustion seeped through every bone in my body. Petrov, she whispered. Yes? Thank you. She pulled back. Her eyes were bloodshot from the tears, but she leaned up and kissed my cheek. Can I stay with you tonight? Um, yeah, of course, I stammered. I just don't want to be alone after everything. Sure, yeah, that would be great. We started to walk out of the store before Jenny stopped at the help desk. She grabbed a pen and started furiously scribbling out a note. When she was done, she held it up to me. Karen, it's been real but Petrov and I quit. Sorry. Ginny, I held out a thumbs up and chuckled weakly. We made our way to the parking lot. Jenny pulled herself close to me and I just figured she was shook up from everything. I mean, I was too. Once we were to the car, she paused and turned to me. Her eyes searched mine and I felt my heart skip a beat. She kissed me. She kissed me long and hard. Let's go home, she smiled. I opened the door to my Volkswagen and helped her into the seat. On the way around to the driver's side, I had just the faintest sensation of doubt, but I pushed it down deep inside. She seemed like the real Jenny to me, and that's all that mattered. Maybe we could finally be together after all. i visited a psychic in new orleans i was given terrible news for 2023 written by cold leisure have you ever felt an overwhelming sense of apathy toward everything there was a point when i had a good career an amazing partner in financial security I have always had a background noise of carelessness towards existence. My inability to be present became overwhelming. My wife Rita often thought of my disposition as emotional unavailability. Still, um, she understood my persistent melancholic mood lent itself to such a state. She rarely held it against me. Rita had a remedy to it all. She was the first to present the idea of us going on vacation to New Orleans. She wanted us to see the Jazz Museum, the St. Louis Cathedral, and Jackson Square. I was less than enthused about a plane flight to see monuments that we could look at in documentaries. She managed to soften my narrow-minded cynicism one day. She reminded me that Sazerac cocktails would be available everywhere there. An excuse to do nothing but drink for a week straight made the trip seem much more worthwhile. We stayed at a place called the Trident Inn. We had our fill of seafood within the first hour of landing. We visited the French Quarter, and I was far more smitten with the place than I could have ever anticipated. The pure freedom in those streets, it's palpable. I want to go back to the hotel, Rita said as she tugged at my jacket. I gave her cash for a cab and told her how I saw a few lined up three streets back. You can't be serious, she said. Let's go together, now. I'm cooped up all day in my job. This is the first time in a while that... I have the chance to get some fresh air and see new sights. Let me enjoy it. I'll be back in the room in an hour. I want to hit up a few more bars. She agreed with reluctance and walked away following the directions that I had given her. I wandered down the leaf-strewn streets lined with Creole and Greek Revival-style buildings. I found a small entrance at the bottom of a flight of stone steps in an alleyway. The threshold was luminescent. I entered it. A small crowd of people holding highball glasses commiserated. They looked at me with a bit of apprehension. A stranger in their domain. The interior had the scent of pumpkin candle wax. The place looked like a 1920s speakeasy. Advertisements on the counters were of vintage products. Pictures on the wall were of the swing era. The telephones in the corners were gold-laden and had a mechanical dial. I sat down. A bow-tied and mustached bartender greeted me. I ordered an old-fashioned whiskey. I looked around between sips and saw a booth that stood out amongst the others. A neon sign which said, Psychic in bold letters faced me. I decided to pay for what I presumed was a theatrical parlor trick. I got comfortable in a chair across from her. I had never done this before, but the liquor made me feel a little loose. How much for a reading? She gave me an estimate of $50. I left my bills on the table and she took them. The act of divination she performed next took me by surprise. She pulled out a piece of what I realized was animal bone. She brought out a small oil bowl and lit its surface on fire. The staff and patrons acted nonplussed despite my terror. What would you like to know about your eminent future? Is my real estate business going to boom within the next half year? I asked. She retrieved the bone with a long pair of pliers. As she took it out, she gazed at it for 30 seconds. Your business is going to fail because you are to die within the next two months, she said. I don't know how, but that is the time frame given by the spirits. I tried to tell myself that the woman was more than likely just a con artist, a smoke-and-mirrors touring road magician. Rita and I walked through Louis Armstrong Park. We got to Congo Square when she decided to comment on a change that she had noticed in me. You seem on edge, she said. We're on vacation, you shouldn't be so uptight. What's bothering you? I did not want to tell her how my interaction with the clairvoyant last night had unsettled me. I was never the type to believe in the paranormal, anyways. I knew that Rita would have been in disbelief that I had even put myself in that mystical situation. I'm fine. I lied. We were half a block away from our rental vehicle when I saw a man in a suit. He did not look like a vagabond or a homeless person due to his exquisite fashion. Still, his hair was greasy and unwashed, and his beard looked as though it had been growing out for a while. He stood next to a tree and stared at us like we were wildlife trapezing through his backyard. I caught him making eye contact with us. He picked up the pace and moved towards us. I immediately had the sense that something was off about him. A scar rested above his upper lip, the obvious byproduct of a bar brawl sometime in his past. I grabbed Rita's hand and we picked up a much more hurried movement. You have an early ending. He said behind us. His tone was caustic, the specter of death is following you, I can sense it. You need to listen to me, if you ignore it, it will be at your peril. I wanted to turn around and confront him at his random gibberish, or what I was trying to interpret as such. Deep down, I felt that he was correct in his assessment. He was roughly the same size as me, so the fight would have been even in that regard. Yet I was not willing to take any risks as far as what he may have been concealing beneath his coat. I did not have anything on me that I could use to defend myself. When we got to our car, I unlocked the doors, Rita stepped into the passenger side, and I got behind the wheel. The man had followed us all the way, and he was now 20 feet apart from where we sat in the vehicle. As I pulled out of the lot, I looked in the rearview mirror at the man. He had started to sprint after us. I saw him reach to his waistband and pull out a blade. Did you make any new enemies last night? Rita asked. Don't be ridiculous, I said. I've never met him before. As I pulled out of the lot, I looked in the rearview mirror at the man. He sprinted after us. I saw him reach to his waistband and pull out a blade as I brought us to the highway, and we escaped. While in bed that night at the hotel, she wrapped her arms around me and squeezed my body tight. What happened today, it bothers me, she said. Try not to worry about it, I said. We did the right thing in removing ourselves from the situation. If I had engaged him, he would have stabbed me or you, or the both of us. He seemed so confident in what he was saying. It's like he knew something that we didn't. That's what crazy people do, I said as I looked into her eyes. He would have said the sky is purple with equal conviction. Don't let him rent space in your head. He's just a random psycho. She never told me that I had calmed her down, but her demeanor indicated that my pep talk had worked. We both fell asleep in our embrace. We went to Lake Pontchartrain the next day. We stepped out of the car and took in the sights. We knew that we had about a mile to walk before we could set up our picnic supplies. I stared at Rita as she grabbed the basket and blankets from our trunk. I took in the sight of her flowing dark hair and emerald eyes. It occurred to me at that moment just how stunning she was. For everything I did in the fast-paced life, it made me take her natural elegance for granted. A car sped towards us and hit her. It was a cream-colored Cadillac that came from behind where I stood. Its metal glinted in the sunlight as it revved into high gear and clipped Rita on the side. She managed to escape into our vehicle. She crawled into the fetal position and scrunched up tight enough to fit into the trunk. She released a scream. The Cadillac hit the main road again. I was full of anger, adrenaline, and terror. I did all I could think of at that moment, which in retrospect it seemed pathetic. I took off my shoes and threw them at the fleeing car. I looked at the driver's seat. It was the same man in the suit. The local police came out and took a report. They asked me if I had managed to catch the license plate, which I had not. They also told me that there were no cameras in the area since it was so remote. Of course, there was also no eyewitness testimonies. I gave them the best description of the individual that I could. I hoped they would tell me that they had a regular troublemaker matching the description, but they gave me a blank expression as they had no idea who I was talking about. The paramedics assessed Rita and found that she had had a crushed foot. They took her to the hospital and they offered an ambulance ride but I drove her after they gave me a map. All they could think about was finding the man and beating him into oblivion. We returned home with my wife's foot in a cast. It felt as though that I had failed her as a man. My guilt overcame me, especially when I had to push her wheelchair. We were on the plane and in the air, I looked around at the other passengers to make sure the man in the suit was not sitting anywhere. When we got back to her house, she looked at me with sadness. We should never go on vacation again. She said, I let her words hang in the air. I could not bring myself to disagree. I paid attention to the date of my prophesied death. Those numbers hung heavy around my neck. I always wondered how a free criminal must feel when he knows that there is a warrant out there for his arrest. I always ruminated on how that must be an extreme way to live or feel. I held the notion that the outlaw had it easy compared to me. By then, I already had resigned myself to any potential destructive fate. But then the date passed. When I got home from the office... I looked everywhere online for the phone number of that one speakeasy that I had stumbled into that fateful day. I searched for different psychic services in New Orleans, but I could never find it. I sought out pictures, matching the semblance of the person that I had encountered. There was no one. As time went on, I continued to lie to my wife. I told her the company they needed me to look at another property out of state, and that I would be gone away from home for three days. Rita being her, she did not question me, which made me feel even worse. I went back to New Orleans. Once I had landed. The first thing I did was go to a utility supply store and buy a couple of mace canisters. I wanted to be ready this time, in case the man in the suit decided to stalk me again. By the time that I arrived at that old fateful speakeasy, the psychic had a line of customers when I went to see her for the second time. I sat down across from her and gave her a little bit of time to try and recognize me. Once she finally did, I spoke. I'm still alive. I knew you would be, she said. I wanted you to feel the excitement and appreciate your life for once. If you hear knocking at your door, please just ignore it. Written by Beardify When I was eleven years old, I had two best friends and they were complete and total opposites. Deborah was outspoken and bold, the fourth child of two wealthy, sports-obsessed doctors. Chantel was thoughtful and cautious the only daughter of a waitress who never seemed to catch a break. It may be that the only thing that we have in common is a terrifying experience that linked us together for life. It started as these things often do, with an unexpected last-minute change of plans. Normally, the three of us had a sleepover at least once a month. We always tried to go to Deborah's. I mean, what kid wouldn't? There were hills for sledding in winter, a rec room in the basement for rainy spring days, a fireplace to tell scary stories around in the fall, and in summer, a sparkling pool out back. To us, it was paradise. We tried my place a few times, but the disappointment that I saw or imagined on my friends' faces as I showed them around the shabby little apartment made a knot in my stomach, and I was relieved whenever they left. We had never even been to Chantel's until that fateful Saturday in June. My parents were out of town, and the original plan was that we would stay at Deborah's all weekend, until Deborah's mom came down with a nasty flu and banned guests from her home. Under the circumstances, Chantel's mother reluctantly allowed us over, When we stepped out from the bus, I thought that we had made a mistake. There was only a highway and pine trees. Chantel took a deep breath as though preparing for something, and led us down a narrow concrete drive almost hidden by the forest. Deborah and I exchanged a glance, but there was nothing to do but follow our friend down the dark lane. Under the shadowy branches, the air was cooler, It smelled like sap and wet dirt, and the dilapidated trailer at the end of the drive was so hemmed in by trees that the branches scraped the windows, and junk rotted in heaps in the tall grass, but there were cheerful Christmas lights strung around the sagging porch, and Chantel's mom smiled and waved as we approached. She talked our ears off as soon as we had stepped inside and before long, we were chowing down on tomato soup and toasted cheese that she had clearly made especially for our visit. Before long, she gave Chantal a kiss on the cheek, told us to watch out for rusty nails outside, and headed to her third shift job at the hospital. She turned suddenly at the door. Chantal remind them not to let anyone in, no matter how hard they knock or how scary they sound. Or who they say they are. If they're meant to be in here, they'll have a key. As the door closed, I noticed that the peephole in the door was plugged shut, and curtains covered every window. It seemed very odd to me, but I mean everyone had some quirks, right? And before long, we were having more fun than we had ever had at Deborah's. Running through the misty trees and catching lightning bugs. Twilight came early in the woods. Back inside, we were sprawled out on the shag carpet surrounded by a pillow fort and unhealthy snacks, laughing as we flipped through weird old magazines. Deborah's parents were so overprotective, and in my neighborhood, it wasn't safe to leave a kid at home alone so this was the first time that we had spent a night without adult supervision. The feeling that we could literally do anything without a chance of getting caught was so exhilarating that I barely noticed Chantal methodically checking the doors and blinds to make sure that everything was completely shot. The first knock could have been anything. We were laughing so hard that we barely heard it. Chantal told us to hush and stood up suddenly. What well, crawled up your butt and died? Deborah asked, which only made us laugh harder. Her face as serious as stone, Chantel clasped a hand over Deborah's mouth, ignoring her muffled protest. That snapped me out of it. I realized that the drone of insects from the forest had stopped completely. Something was wrong. It was quiet enough that there was no mistaking the next pattern. Tap, tap, tap on the front door. Seriously, Chantal, what's wrong with you? Deborah giggled, twisting free of her weaker friend. We shushed at her furiously. Knock, knock, knock. The sound was more insistent now like an angry neighbor wanting to make a noise complaint. Let's go to my room. Chantel suddenly announced in a whisper, Please? And Deborah and I exchanged another glance and then shrugged. Chantel turned off the lights and the television. Something like instinct compelled us to move quietly, and our attempts to tiptoe made the ramshackle trailer seem especially empty and silent. I felt cold sweat trickle down my spine each time the floor creaked. For some reason, my eyes kept darting to the curtain windows, and I would swear that I heard a faint tapping at each window as we passed it, as if there was a little boy outside throwing pebbles. Chantal let out a sigh of relief as we entered her bedroom and shut the door, apparently glad to have another barrier between us and whatever was outside. We didn't say much as Chantal got out an old board game. Candyland, I think, and began to set it up. Before long, Desper and Chantel started to whisper, giggle, and then finally talk normally again. But I couldn't calm down. It was too strange. I thought about the TV show, cops, and psycho ex-boyfriends who came back to attack the family. And then I mentally replayed every horror movie that I had ever seen, about crazy people who live deep in the woods. Chantal, at least, seemed to think the danger had passed. She was tossing the dice at Deborah's head. I wanted to ask her if the knocking was a regular occurrence, but I was too scared. Scared that talking about it might somehow make it real. About 40 minutes later, we heard pounding on the door. This time, we all made a point to ignore it and go on with our game. It worked until the doorbell had started ringing. The classic ding-dong didn't seem that menacing, but Chantal had gone pale. I remembered then that the trailer didn't have anything so fancy as a doorbell out front, but it was getting louder now too, echoing down at the empty hallways. Chantal, I whispered, what's going on? I don't know. My friend finally responded. As long as I can remember, wherever we've lived, there's been this knocking sometimes. Mom doesn't like to talk about it, but she says as long as I don't react, it'll go away eventually, and it always does. It can get really bad, though. One time, it went on for hours. I swear that I could actually see the dust and spiders getting knocked out of the walls. She gave us a nervous little smile. Sometimes a voice asks for you or calls for help. Sometimes it seems to be someone that you know. The doorbell, though, that one's new. While you can't let it walk all over you for the rest of your life, Deborah stopped chewing her bubblegum and gave us a serious glare. The tapping continued in the background, almost like a drumbeat. Deborah, Chantel warned but our headstrong friend Dirty grabbed a taped-up hockey stick from Chantel's closet and flung open the bedroom door. Hey, Deborah bellowed. Whatever it is, we aren't interested. The tapping stopped. The silence deepened. Deborah smirked. See, I keep telling you, you've just got to stand up for your... Chantel wasn't exaggerating when she said the blows were hard enough to shake the walls. The wallop that the house took was so hard it created clouds of dust. I screamed. Chantel hid under the bed, and Deborah used the hockey stick to smash a centipede as it fled across the room. The blows came one after another, as if a huge invisible hand was slapping the house. I joined Chantel under the bed grabbing tight to the carpet with my eyes shut tight. I tried not to feel the tiny legs of spiders scurrying over me. Every living thing was trying to escape the house. Deborah, Chantel hissed. Shut the door and get down here. I'm going to call your mom. Deborah shouted from the hallway. Or the police or somebody. It won't do any good, Chantel murmured. The knocking came from everywhere now. The windows, the back door, even from the trap door to the attic. It's never been this bad. She shouldn't have said anything. I tried to call, but all I heard in the phone line was a doorbell that wouldn't stop ringing. Deborah said in a small voice as she slid under the bed with us. The lights flickered. I don't think they're going to go away this time. Chantel snapped. Not until they get what they came for. You guys are my best friends in the world, you know that. Don't come out, no matter what. But before we could stop her, Chantel darted from the bed and out the bedroom door, which she locked behind her with an old-fashioned key. Deborah charged and pounded on the door, demanding to know where she thought she was going. But it was obvious to me even before I heard the front door creak open. The knocking stopped immediately. Deborah and I tried to quiet our breathing, waiting. Hey, it's okay, guys. You can come out now. Chantel called out after what felt like hours. We looked at each other and stayed put. Seriously? There were a few gentle taps on the bedroom door. Open up, guys. It's fine. Why don't you use the key? Deborah muttered. There was a pause. I don't want to be alone out here, please. There was a noise like a child's hand patting the door, searching for a weak spot. Please, let me in. The patting soon became pounding. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. I don't know how long it went on for or how Deborah and I managed to fall asleep in each other's arms under the bed where Chantel's mom had found us the next morning. She called the police immediately, of course, but there was no sign of Chantel there, even of any damage to the house. The sobbing, incoherent story that we told was a little help to the officers, and at one point we were accused of making it all up. Perhaps foolishly, Chantel's mother told the police about the strange knocking and supported our story we never found out exactly how much she knew because with no other suspect she became the target of the investigation the smiling talkative woman who made us soup and sandwiches was found guilty for her daughter's murder the house and land were sold and turned into warehouses the missing person flyers faded and disappeared, and little by little, the world forgot about Chantal. Deborah and I, however, couldn't forget, even if we wanted to. Whatever had taken Chantal had heard Deborah's voice, and it wasn't going to let us go so easily. After my friend Chantal had disappeared when, she answered a knock at her door. I made a list of rules for myself. I always kept my blinds shut, and I never answered any door or reacted to knocking, sounds, or voices if I couldn't see their source. I threw myself into my schoolwork and tried to put the whole thing behind me. My parents were so thrilled by my sudden interest in academics that they barely had noticed my new bizarre behavior around doors and windows. I just thought that I was growing up. The truth was that I had made a simple choice. I was going to make it no matter what. Out of that moldy apartment and withering town. Away from these smoke belching factories and the housewives who gossiped about us besides stacks of angel food cake. I would go far away, far from anything unnatural, far from the past. And Deborah was a different story. While I looked to the future, she threw herself wholeheartedly into attempting to resolve the past. With her good looks, athletic skills, and influential family, Deborah was one of the most popular kids in school. Until her new obsession revealed how fickle people can be. Deborah went down a rabbit hole of paranormal investigation and occult studies, as her grades and health suffered. Her friends had disappeared. The final straw came when she showed some guests a device that she had set up between the hall door and her bedroom door that would allow her to trap something in that area without looking at it. I have to admit, I was just as guilty of abandoning Deborah. The truth was is that I had blamed her too, and it wasn't easy to spend time with her when her only topic of conversation Was something that I spent all my time trying to avoid. The atmosphere in her house didn't help. Deborah's parents' marriage didn't survive her traumatic shift in personality, and her mother's drinking habit became so severe that Deborah's father had gained custody of all of her siblings when he left. Although Deborah's psychiatrist convinced the judge to allow her to stay with her mother. That house, once an inviting place full of sights, smells, and sounds of a family living life to the fullest, it soon felt abandoned. On the nights when Deborah's mother would drunkenly wander the halls, humming songs to herself, it even felt haunted. By the time that we were teenagers, Deborah and I barely even saw each other. Since neither of us responded to visits or even phone calls, we had to have had a different way of making contact. We met once a year on the day of Chantal's disappearance in the parking lot of one of the warehouses where Chantal's home once stood. It was a good location, outdoors with plenty of warehouse workers around and nowhere for anything to hide. We would each bring a thermos of our favorite drink and circle the parking lot talking about our lives. Or rather, I would try to talk about our lives, and Deborah would try to bring our conversation back to her obsession. The knocking, as we called it, happened to each of us a few times each year. Just as Chantal had warned us, it was sometimes longer or shorter, more intense or less, and seemingly random, the worst times were when we weren't alone and had to somehow prevent other people who were oblivious to the danger from doing something so obvious as opening a door. It happened to me when my family had ordered pizza. It was a big deal for us to celebrate the scholarship that I would earned. When the three sharp raps hit the door and my father stood to answer, I practically dove down the hallway sliding on my socks. I stammered that the delivery boy was cute and I wanted some time to talk to him alone as I grabbed a handful of wrinkled dollars and closed the hallway door behind me. Behind me was the tiny worn out living room that I had always known. Beyond the door, who knew? Eyes closed, I leaned my head against the cold surface of the door to listen. I heard gibbering and ragged breaths on the other side. The worst part was that my closeness to the door made the breathing heavier and faster, like something was getting excited or hungry. The three taps came again and I heard movement from the living room. With panic, I realized my parents were coming to see what was going on. I slid away from the front door and I closed off the hallway. Turns out he's a real idiot, I whispered. He'll probably just keep knocking to get my attention. Let's just ignore him, alright. My father made a get-the-shotgun sort of movement, but I grabbed his arm. He goes to my school, Dad, okay? Come on, don't make a scene. We sat awkwardly in the living room around the TV while the tapping droned on. When it stopped, we all let out a breath of relief until it resumed again with a different beat. Alright, that's it. My father bellowed, pushing himself out of his rocking chair and lurching towards the front door. "Dad, no!" I shouted, but it was too late to intercept him. My father flung open the apartment door, terrifying the middle-aged pizza delivery woman waiting with her order. Confused and embarrassed, my father handed over the cash that I had dropped, and mumbled an apology as he accepted our pizza. When the woman laughed, he gave me a long, hard look. I hope you know what you're doing, my father sighed. Something was different about Deborah when we met that June, the year that I turned eighteen. I was going away to wait a college the next fall. I wasn't sure what Deborah was doing after school. Each time that I saw her, she looked a little more gaunt, a little more weary, a little more faded. The sleeves of her hoodie were pulled down to her chipped, black painted fingernails and she kept touching her hair. The pink dye had almost faded and each strand was cobwebbed. then. What made me nervous though was the white SUV with glittering rims and blacked out windows that had dropped her off and was still waiting for her, bass humming like a huge mechanical shark. When I asked Deborah what she had been up to, her answers were scattered and vague. She couldn't give a clear account of where she had been or what she had been doing. The conversation died quickly and with a nervous glance at the rumbling SUV, she turned to go. I reached out to stop her, suddenly sure that if she got in, I would never see her again. But she slipped through my grasp. As she did, she shoved something into my chest hard enough to make me stumble and muttered, This is for you. Whatever it was, it was heavy and square, wrapped in layer after layer of protective plastic bags. I sat in my car, sadly watching the white SUV pull away as I opened a Deborah's package. Inside were letters. She had been writing to Chantel's mother in prison almost weekly, and these were the responses. Tears welling out of my eyes, I jammed my car into gear. Deborah was in trouble. I had to find that white SUV. I thought that I saw a turn left and that would make sense. It was the highway back toward town. But I grew more and more panicked as the SUV failed to appear. I merged out of the highway and stepped on the pedal until my second-hand Honda literally shook. When the speedometer passed 95, I finally saw it. Idling along in the right lane like the driver wasn't in any hurry. I lined up a few cars behind and followed. The white SUV took a lazy path to a rundown side of town, an area that boomed back when railroad was king. Now old corrals and paper mills rusted beside weed covered tracks. It was a place where you ended up, not where you went on purpose. The SUV came to a stop behind a corrugated metal wall. And I stopped just before going around the corner. Malagudu was hoped that whoever was driving Deborah around hadn't heard my squealing brakes. A tanned, muscular man in a snow-white suit and tie got out of the SUV and opened the rear door for Deborah. And two other men wearing basketball jerseys and wraparound sunglasses. Next to these three, Deborah looked like a strong wind could blow her away. The odd group headed off in a triangle formation with Deborah in the middle. I was still trying to tell myself to go home, that this was none of my business, when one man lifted up his jersey to scratch his sweating back, and I saw a nickel plated pistol stuffed into the top of his pants. I had no choice now. Unable to decide whether to try to be stealthy or act natural, I half walked, half crept through the tick infested weeds along the dilapidated metal wall. Inside, I could hear the whir of fans struggling against the humidity, and the static buzz of AV equipment being checked. A heavy door slammed and I peered around the corner. As far as I could tell, my route to the door was completely clear. There was no one to catch me or to call for help. I rushed up to the door, shoved it open. I knew better than to knock and I burst into the building. Seven faces spun to gawk at me, all of them surprised. Deborah, most of all. Two men had clearly reached for the weapons, but it was the man in the snow-white suit who spoke. Who are you? he asked bluntly. I took a look around. Little drywall structures, bathrooms, offices, storerooms, line me in inside of the otherwise derelict structure. The partners to me had a stage lighting and a microphone boom as well, like some sort of film set. The fake bedroom, plastic wrapped mattress, handcuffed lined bed frame, and Deborah's wardrobe indicated the nature of the film. Deborah had taken off her outer clothing and for the first time I saw how thin she was. She wasn't fast enough to cover the bruises and the track marks on her arms and legs. I'm, uh, I stammered. I'm the other girl for the shoot." The man in the white suit studied me skeptically, he had a cherry lollipop in his mouth, which shifted from one side to the other when he spoke. Kevin didn't say nothing about no other girl, it's kind of a last minute thing, I gave him a big smile. The crew looked at each other and shrugged. The man in the white suit gave me a once over and he rolled his eyes. Uh, Fine, he grunted, and chomped the red lollipop into pieces, saliva running down his chin like blood. Go get changed, and uh, you might want to loosen up. If you sign an agreement like she did, anything goes. Uh, My friend is uh, just going to help me for a minute. I smiled again and grabbed Deborah's hand to pull her toward the restroom. I ignored the look on her face until we were inside the tiny drywall bathroom but the door closed. We both had started whimpering and shoving each other at once. As usual, it was Deborah who went out, despite her weakened condition. What are you doing here? She hissed. You have no idea what these people are capable of. Why didn't you tell me about all of this sooner? I cried, pointing at a needle mark. You didn't exactly make yourself available. Deborah responded coldly. Don't feel bad, this is what I deserve, but I never wanted you to be a part of it. No, don't say that, don't. I took a deep breath and dialed a number on the phone in my pocket. Look, it'll be alright, I've called the cops. Are you crazy? The cheap wall shook as Deborah pushed me against it. Those guys will break this door down a long time before the cops show up, and when they see that you've called... Something pounded on the bathroom door and we both jumped. It sounded like the butt of a pistol. A gruff voice told us to hurry up. In the area outside, I could hear the man in the white suit telling the others what he wanted them to do to us and how to make the best camera angle while doing it. I searched desperately for a weapon, but there was nothing. Not even a toothbrush or a towel rack that could be ripped out of the wall. Deborah just held herself resigned. It was only a matter of time before they unlocked or kicked the door down and dragged us out by force. I hugged Deborah. I didn't know what else to do. I felt her sick, damp, ragged breathing on my neck, and I knew that I should have taken care of her like this from the beginning. Like it or not, what happened to Chantel had bound us together, no matter what. A few minutes later, the conversation stopped, and I wondered if I was really hearing what I thought I was hearing from the abandoned building's outside door. All right, what the heck is it now? I heard the man in the white suit groan. Get lost, we're busy. The doorbell rang again. There was no way this broken-down rat trap had a doorbell, but we heard it nevertheless, getting louder each time. Xavier, take care of it. The man in the white suit snarled. You got it, boss. Xavier boomed in a deep drawl. I heard the sound of a handgun slide and a peephole sliding open. And then silence. Xavier. The man in the white suit murmured. You okay? What's out there? No response. Xavier. Came in angry order and then a gunshot and a clamor of voices. My God, he's dead. Everybody calmed down. I heard the man in the white suit roar. Heavy breathing, weapons being readied. Knocking. No one moved. No one wanted to be the first to face what was out there. Chantel, an 11-year-old girl that had been braver than all of them, I heard a meaty, slopping sound like something wet lifting itself off the ground. It's alright, said a friendly voice. It had a deep, booming Louisiana drawl, and the air wheezed through a bullet hole in its jaws as it spoke. It's alright, you can let us in. The lights went out. Someone flung open the main door, screams at gunshots. I blocked the bathroom door with my body and Deborah and I clutched each other tightly in the dark, just as we had seven years ago. The officers who arrived 20 minutes later were a bit uncomfortable, having to batter down the bathroom door, rather than me opening it, but they complied. There was no blood and no signs of violence except for a few stray bullet holes on the wall. Given our history, I knew how our story would sound without evidence to back it up. Fortunately, Deborah was lucid enough, despite the drugs, to give the right amount of detail about what she had been going through. One old officer coiled his mustache disbelievingly as he listened, and when the others moved away, he leaned in close. Use the girls from that disappearance seven years ago, yeah. Yeah, I nodded, a nod forming in my stomach. His mouth twisted. It was the expression of a person too cynical to smile. You know, if I was to give some advice in a strictly non-professional capacity... The officer let his aviator glasses slide down his beaky nose and gave us both a cold, blue-eyed glare. I would say you might want to think about leaving town for good. I couldn't agree more, I smiled, and I squeezed at Debra's hand. After rehab, Deborah moved to the town where I attend college. At first, I thought that with my scholarship that I would only be able to afford to live in the dorms, but things had worked out quite differently. When Deborah's father had heard about all that had happened, he was happy to help pay for an apartment where his daughter could get back on her feet. We're roommates now, and although we haven't heard any mysterious knocking lately, we still keep our own rules and our own keys. thank you all for listening to this week's episode i hope that you enjoyed it wherever you might be in the world i hope that you're staying safe and sound and as always stay creepy lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need.